0: Well, church, let me invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians as so we continue our study in this wonderful little book. I'm excited to be able to share with you some insights that God has laid upon my heart, and I trust that he might uh, burden your heart with them as well. I, I, I am, by the way, uh, enjoying this out, these outdoor worship services. Are you? It's, I think uh, they're, uh, I mentioned last week I need to come up with a better word, but they're fun. I just I feel like there's a, a renewed joy in our worship, and in our church, and I'm excited to be able to uh, worship outside with you, even on a cool fall-like morning like it is today. Um, By the way, moving outside is, uh, and worshiping outside is no small feat. Uh, And a lot goes into moving outside, none of which I've contributed. Um, And so I I just want to, um, and they they don't even know I'm gonna do this, but we have a sound team, we have an AV team that have spent so many hours working to make sure that this is possible and this sounds good. And uh, I, I thought it might be nice to be able to appreciate them this morning. you mind doing that right now? Also, I'm excited to let you know that, that next Sunday, God willing, uh, it's going to be a special day in the life of our church. Uh, we are going to uh, set aside for the ministry of of the elder or a pastor, both uh, Cody Snyder and Tom Johnson. And so both of those men will be receiving ordination next week. And so we're going to do that outside here on the lawn, if God's willing. I'm excited to be able to do that. I think that's going to be a wonderful and encouraging time for our church as we've already been blessed by the ministry of these men as we officially set them aside. We've been meaning to do that for a number of months. I've been been waiting week by week for this COVID thing to disappear. It seems to be hanging on. Um, And so we're going to go ahead and do that outside, and we're excited to be able to do that. Uh, next week. I trust that will be a blessing to everyone who's involved. So hopefully you found your way to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to pick up our study here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, hear now the word of God. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Our Father in heaven, uh, it is to our great delight that we can, as we do on on every Sunday morning, uh, able to turn our hearts' attention to your truth. And we ask that you, according to your kindness, would speak to us that even as uh, a feeble and a frail man stands up here and attempt to explain what you have recorded for us and apply it to our lives, we pray that something uh, beyond uh, man speaking would happen today, that indeed the Spirit of God who resides within us would take the words that are shared and apply them into our hearts in such a way that we might describe it as a powerful working. That's how your scripture describes it. And so we long for nothing less this morning than for you, the God Almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth, to work in our lives in such a way that we might be encouraged and filled with hope and more and more molded into the image of Christ, that we might be more faithful to the great calling to bear the image of God. And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the year 734 B.C. that two colossal figures met outside Jerusalem at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. The first man was a man named Ahaz. He was the king of Judah. The second was the towering prophet of his day, a man named Isaiah. And they gathered there to speak of this, the crisis that was facing Judah, and in particular, King Ahaz, that the, the nation of Judah was being threatened by the enemies to the north. And so Ahaz was planning to enter into an alliance with the superpower of his day, the nation of Syria. And yet to do so would have required Ahaz to worship Assyrian gods. And so Isaiah met him out there at that very public place, prophet and king. And Isaiah exhorted Ahaz to stand firm in his commitment to the Lord himself. In fact, he warned of the disaster that entering into this pagan alliance would bring, saying, if you do not stand firm in your faith, You will not stand at all. Well, sadly, if you know the story, Ahaz would not. He would go ahead, would not stand firm, that is. He would join an alliance with Assyria, and immediately it seemed like it worked out. Assyria defeated Judah's enemies, but not long after that, Assyria um, took over Judah made it a vassal state. And just as Isaiah had warned, bringing in their pagan idols into Jerusalem, God's holy city. I mention that story because it seems like the Thessalonians are facing a similar threat. They're facing a similar enemy. And Paul has warned them, as we've seen in our, our study of this book, of a coming man of lawlessness. And, a, and, a, and even uh, the present spirit of lawlessness that's already at work, as he says in verse 7. He spoke of a great tribulation and a great apostasy to come and a great persecution. But, of course, all of that is taking place to some degree right now. And so Paul, like Isaiah before him, exhorts the Thessalonians, as you see in verse 15, to stand firm in their faith, to rely upon God to save them. And so we saw, in fact, the great work that God had done to save them. We considered that last week, we did not, as Paul pointed to them, that That God worked even before time and is working even now and will work through their life and even to the very end in order to save them. That God has loved them and God has chosen them as God has called them through the gospel and God is sanctifying them through the spirit. And one day, by God's grace, they will attain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in light of all that God has done and is doing and will do for us in our salvation, finally Paul comes to a command, an application. And so you think about that. Therefore, God's done all this. He chose you. He's called you. He's sanctifying you. He will glorify you. Therefore, how would you you answer that question? Therefore, what? Therefore, sleep in. Therefore, relax. Therefore, take it easy. God's got it all. He's taking care of it all. From the very beginning to the very end, God's got it. So therefore, uh, just go with the flow. Notice what he says there in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. Brace yourself. Endure. As Paul moves from this impassioned thanks to God for the work that he has done, and now this earnest exhortation to stand firm. Of course, we've already seen the opposite has happened in the Thessalonians' life. You remember in verse 2, he says, Brothers, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And about all this false teaching that is circling around you. They've lost their stability. They're, they're, they're wobbling in their faith. And so Paul comes and he begins to exhort them. He's trying to stabilize them. Trying to firm them up so that they will not be blown over. In fact, there's a number of things that are threatening to blow over these Thessalonians. We saw in chapter 1 that they're being persecuted. And so... Suffering is coming upon them. In chapter 2, we've seen that they are being a false, a false teachers are misleading them. We'll find out in chapter 3, God willing, next time, that sinners are tempting them. This is really the threefold attack that all Christians experience. Christians experience physical attack, that is suffering. We experience intellectual attack, that is heresy. We experience moral attack, that is temptation. These three uh, opponents continue to come upon Christians. And so that we live in many ways, and perhaps you experience it even today, in a vicious tornado of sin and heresy and pressure that is, threatens our stability, threatens to undo us, threatens to blow us over. I think there's great relevance, therefore, in these verses for us today. We have temptations that seek to pull us away. There is false teaching abounds in the Christian church. Whether it's the, the the health and wealth gospel or it's Protestant liberalism, a false teaching is everywhere, even within Christianity. And then perhaps most uh of the greatest pressure which we face is is the opposition from the world that we continually face. I, I don't I don't think this is any news to you, but the world does not like what you believe. And increasingly so. I read an interview about a year ago from an English pastor who said that. In England, about 20 years ago, Christians were considered by the, the, the culture at large silly and foolish people to be pitied. He says today, we're considered evil people to be opposed. And this pastor said, America, you're a generation behind us. Perhaps the world thinks of you as foolish and silly people to be patronized and pat on the head and, and the object of their jokes. But there is coming a day in which, which that tolerance, if you will, will, will fade away and you will no longer be considered simple people, but rather evil people that we should oppose and stand in opposition. In fact, I think that day is already arising, arriving here upon us. We already feel that pressure. We are on that trajectory, certainly. There is a great pressure in our world to deny our truth. There is a great pressure upon us to deny our theology. The world is yelling at us to get with the times, to to get on the right side of history, to come and get up to date. We constantly hear this over and over again. And so the question that I think is going to be before us over and over as we live this Christian life is when we come to the Bible and it says, listen, I'm supposed to be generous, I'm supposed to be sacrificial, yet... I really want, you know, my powder room really needs to be updated. And the question before us is, will I stand firm? Will you stand firm? The Bible says that Christians are to only marry Christians, according to verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And yet, many times people fall in love with a non-Christian. The question is, will you stand firm at that time? I talk to you teenagers and young adults, you college students. The Bible says you're to be chaste till you're married. You're to be pure. And yet how many times do we fall in love? And the question arises before us. Will I stand firm? I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I'm supposed to remain committed to her, but, you know, I'm just not happy anymore. I'm just, it's just not working for me, any, me anymore. The question is, will I stand firm? Will you stand firm when what you want contradicts what the Bible says? Paul writes to these wavering Thessalonians. to stand firm, reminding us perhaps of what Jesus said. Do not be like reeds shaken in the wind, but rather be rock-like and immovable. Stand firm. So then, brothers, stand firm. The question then that might arise is how. How is it that we can stand firm in the midst of the pressures we face? I think Paul lists for us four ways, according to this passage, on how the Christian can find stability in a world of pressure and trouble. The first you'll see is that we should embrace Scripture. The first way to stand firm is to embrace Scripture. For note what he says there in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Hold to the traditions. Now, when he, Paul says traditions, he's not, he's, you know, I ask my kids, what do you th- what, when I say tradition, what do you think of? They think of Christmas, okay? Does that come to mind? Paul's not talking about the annual fruitcake, okay, when he says, hold to the traditions. He's not talking about choir robes. He, he, he's not talking about church potlucks, though I, I'm, I look forward to that day. Remember potlucks? Remember when we used to have those things? That will be a great day when we have it, but that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about what we might call ecclesiastical traditions, theologies created by the church, uh, not found in scriptures, purgatory, penance, and so forth, but, some people will argue for. He's not talking about that. When he says traditions, it's actually a technical word for the body of truth that, that he has given them. And he'll use this phrase a number of times, the traditions in which I have imparted you. And so we think about the, the body of doctrine that the, the apostles have left for us. The, sometimes it's called the apostolic teachings or the apostolic traditions. You say, where do we find these traditions? Well, it's right here. You find it in the New Testament. This is where the apostles have passed passed this down. Of course, the New Testament was not written yet when Paul was writing Second Thessalonians, the third oldest Christian book we have. The only other books out there were Galatians and, of course, First Thessalonians, which is why Paul says the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word, my teaching, or our letter, that is, referring to 1st Thessalonians. And so they have received these traditions, and he says you need to hold on to them. And so I exhort you, Christians, we need to, hold on to the scripture. We need to hold on to the traditions that we have received. And you may think that sounds obvious, but I'm afraid it's not. as I've already mentioned, so many churches in our day are abandoning the scripture, are abandoning the traditions which are taught by it, right? And there's always these modern ideas and these modern ethics that run contrary to the Bible. And, and the, the world today is telling us, as I've already said, to get with the times, to be inclusive, to open your mind to new ideas. And so we might ask, why not, why not have female pastors? We might ask, why, why not embrace same-sex union? We might ask, why not redefine God as the largest Presbyterian denomination in America has, as not just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also referring to him as mother, daughter, and holy womb? Why not? Why don't we do those things? Because the scripture doesn't teach them. We must hold to the scripture. And I think this is the key for the church. It's certainly the key for our church. I appreciate uh, Craig praying for our church today that we in the midst of all the, the pressure that's going to be upon us, we, we are not about creating something new. We are about holding on to something old, namely God's Word. It's why we even recited the, the oldest Christian creed today, the Apostles' Creed, to remind us that what we believe is not something we came up with, but it is something that the church has been believing from its very beginning. This is what Christians believe. And so Paul says, hold on. Hold on, because you'll be tempted to be blown away. You need to grip hold of God's truth. It was in 1987 that the pilot Henry Dempsey was flying his 15-passenger turboprop plane. When he reached about 4,000 feet in elevation, he heard a loud noise in the back of the plane. And so he turned the controls over to his co-pilot and walked to the back of the plane to investigate When he got to the back of the plane, the the plane hit turbulence. Dempsey was thrown against the back door, which flew open, sucking Henry Dempsey out the door. The co-pilot made an emergency landing 15 minutes later, and he was stunned to find, as were the emergency personnel, pilot Henry Dempsey, his face 12 inches above the runway, holding on to the railing of that door as they landed. You think about it, everything was working against him. Gravity, noise, suction, wind, everything was trying to pull him to his doom. Everything was trying to undo him, and yet he held on. In fact, he held on so tight, they had to pry his fingers off. He could not release the railing, one finger at a time. My friends, that's how we should hold on to God's word. When sin and false teaching and the world seeks to move us, seeks to throw us off balance, seeks to unstabilize us, there is something that we can hold on to. Amen? It is God's word. And therefore, what we must study it and learn it and listen to it and discuss it and memorize it and meditate on it And apply it to our lives. So then, my brothers, stand firm, Paul says. A second way in which we stand firm, I would suggest that Paul teaches, though it's a minor point, is to commit ourselves to the church. It's not a minor, that's not a minor point. It's a minor point in this text, but it's a very important point in scripture. That we ought to commit ourselves to the church. You notice, I just simply want to point out something that Paul has been repeating throughout this letter. The way he refers to the Thessalonian believers, he says there in verse 15, does he not? So then, brothers, brothers, he calls them brothers. He did so in verse 13 as well. You see, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. In fact, if you look in chapter 1 in verse 3, he says the exact same thing, but we always give thanks to God for you, brothers. He'll say in chapter 2, verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, now, brothers, pray for us. In chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 13, again, referring to them as brothers. You are my brothers. That, In other words, they are family. They are family. There is a community of God's people, the family of God in the church. And I, I, I think what the scripture teaches us is that, the family of God is not optional, that we need each other. We need to be part of the church. I mention this because I find that so many people in our day seem to be uh, attached to Christ and yet feel free to be unattached to the local church. And what they become, as scripture teaches, just wandering sheep without the protection of shepherds, without the protection of a herd, and, and it's an extremely dangerous place to be. I think When people walk away from the church, they are are either walking into sin or headed that direction. And you know people that have walked away from the Lord, have lost their footing, and no longer stand firm. It begins first when they begin to disassociate themselves from the very people of God. We need the church. The church helps us to remain firm in the truth that we have. I was sad to read a recent study of evangelicals reported two, fa- two things. Number one, 62% of evangelicals believe the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Okay, 62%. says, yay, yeah, yeah, Bible, that's my authority. 50%, same study, agree with this statement. The Bible is written for each person to interpret as he chooses. Okay, so you, you put those together. The Bible is my highest authority, and the Bible means whatever I want it to mean. You see, you see the discontinuity there, I hope. Right? The Bible does not mean whatever you want it to mean. It means what it means, which actually is quite, quite often in opposition to what we want. This is why we need the church. We hold to the traditions of Scripture as a family. The church becomes the interpretive community as we come to the Bible together. Right? And so we, we interpret Scripture through the help of authorized pastors, through the help of, of Sunday school teachers, and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ as they guide us in our understanding of Scripture, and we guide them. In other words, we're not to study Scripture simply in isolation. Now, I love, by the way, I love private Bible study. Please study the Bible on your own. But that, if that's all we have, is all you have is your own private Bible study, you are far more prone to misinterpret Scripture. And therefore, we need the checks and balances of the very people of God. And so I would encourage us to stand firm by being committed to God's people. I'm excited for this new members class. Once again, this Saturday, that uh, Cody is going to be teaching that. And if you're interested in membership, what does it mean to be part of Hamilton Baptist Church? I would encourage you to be involved in that class. I think this is a great help for us in standing firm. The third thing that Paul tells us that we should stand firm is that way in which we can stand firm is that we can be comforted by hope. Notice Paul pivots in verse 16 as he goes from exhortation to benediction, or we might call it prayer. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So, It's interesting, isn't it? Because in verse 15, he appeals to them to stand firm. And now in verse 17, he's praying to God to establish them or to to help them to stand firm. So first a command to stand firm, then a prayer for God to do it. Which is it? Do I do it or does God do it? Of course, it's both, isn't it? We see this over and over again in scripture that though we obey God, we do not do so in our own strength. But we do it through the enabling of God and the strength that he provides for us. And so he's asking God, God, will you do this work in their life? Will you work profoundly and powerfully in their life? In fact, Paul, throughout this letter, has been praying for them and asking God to work in their life. In chapter 1 and verse 11, he prayed that God would make them worthy. In chapter 3 and verse 5, we'll see that, God will pray, that Paul will pray that God will direct their hearts. And now here he's praying that God would comfort them and establish them. I mention that because sometimes I hear this idea that is uh, spoken by well-meaning people. And the, the quote is something like this, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Have you heard that? Prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. That is, when I pray, uh, God's not really going to respond to my prayers, but I'm going I'm to be impacted by relying and depending upon the Lord. And certainly prayer should and does change us. But I just want to be clear, that's not a biblical idea. Paul is asking for God to do something in response to his prayers. He is praying, God, will you act? Will you... Will you respond to what I'm saying? So when we pray, for instance, excuse me, I have a guest here. Um, When we pray that God would give us safe travels, we're asking God to do something. We're asking God to work in our our will that we're not foolish and text and drive. We're asking God to work in providence that we miss the nail. We're asking God to help us be alert. (laughs) This is going to be fun, isn't it? Um, We're asking God to help us be alert for the the driver. We want God to work. God, do things in order to keep us safe. This is, uh, this is what Jesus did. When, when The night before Jesus was crucified, Simon Peter was facing a great temptation, wasn't he, in order to lose his stability, in fact, even lose his faith. He was facing the opposition of persecution, opposition of the world, the pressure of the world, and the question would, would he stand firm? Jesus, aware of this was happening or going to happen, pulled him aside before it even did, and he says, Simon, listen, I've prayed for you. Prayed what? Do you remember remember what Jesus prayed? That, That though you'll fail me, you're going to return to me. Right? In other words, I'm praying that you would stand firm. Right? I'm praying that your faith would not fail. And we see that though Peter stumbled, he didn't entirely abandon the Lord because Jesus prayed for them. I think Paul's doing something very similar here. Paul's praying that their faith may not fail. Right? Or I'm praying that God would establish you. And in order to do so, it's very, a, a wonderful passage there in verse 16, perhaps even worthy of, of your consideration and memorization. That he says, listen, God has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And therefore, he says in verse 17, God comfort their hearts. I love that phrase, you have a good hope. God's given us a good hope. Christians should be hopeful people, shouldn't we? In fact, I think Paul has been writing about all these wonderful things as to why we should be hopeful. God loves us, as we saw last week. He saved us. He's working in us. He's returning for us. God's going to complete what he started in us. God's going to rule over us at the very end. Christ returns. We win. We get ushered into his kingdom. We should be, of all people, the most optimistic. Shouldn't we? I mentioned that. We have a good hope. Listen, we live in a chaotic time. There's, there's not a lot of good news being reported on, on the news channels. And we should not be the people running around saying the sky is falling, running around, woe is me, isn't this awful, everything's terrible, this is the worst. We should be the people in the midst of the chaos of our day, rising above it, optimistic, not naively, but because we have a good hope. We should be the most hopeful of all people. And if when we have that hope in the midst of chaos, Paul says, listen, that hope is going to comfort you. He says that God has given us an eternal comfort and good hope, and then he goes on to pray in light of that hope that we have. God, will you comfort them? Do you realize the the comfort that hope can provide in a chaotic world? I mean, hope can change everything. I I don't know if, I'm sure you have been impacted by the, school shootings that occasionally and sadly happen in our land and in particular the one that changed my life was sandy hook and probably did so because my my brother and his family lived not far from there and i'll always remember as these parents were reunited you seen the, you seen the footage the parents being reunited with their children and some parents just embrace the child like they're, like they're never going to let them go one parent in particular I remember grabbing the child's face and staring into their eyes as if they were looking into a face that they thought they might never see again. Well, imagine the, the comfort that must have been provided for them between the time they re- reunited with their child, but they received the phone call saying, hey, we just want to let you know your child's okay, we have him, we're going to bring him out to you soon. So you haven't received the child yet, but you've received the good news, he's alive, we're bringing him, we're bringing her out to you. Does that, that hope not provide comfort to you? I mean, it changes everything, doesn't it? It's extraordinary, right? The news of hope brings great comfort, Paul says. There's a sustaining hope. My son is alive. I'm going to see him soon. Well, don't you understand, Christian, that's our hope. Our Lord is alive. Jesus is alive. We are going to see him soon. And therefore, in light of that hope, you ought to have great comfort, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of chaos. It ought to give you strength to persevere, to continue to stand firm. I've shared with you before, I'm sure, the experiment conducted by John Hopkins University as they uh, sought to determine how long a rat could swim. And they found out if you put a rat in water, a rat can swim for about 10 minutes before it drowns. However, if you're to grab that rat, I'm sure with like some kind of tongs or something, right, and lift the rat out of the water two to three times in that first 10 minutes, the rat will continue to swim beyond 10 minutes, not for hundred minutes, not for a thousand minutes. The rat will actually swim for 60 hours. So you go from 10 minutes, a little swim, but if you take it out two or three times, the rat will go on to swim for two and a half days. What's the difference? Well, hope, right? That's right. Someone inserted hope into that rat's life. Now, I'm not calling you all rats, okay? But the world's going crazy. How are you going to stand firm? How are you going to resist? All the temptations in your life. How are you you going to resist the temptation and say, well, I'm just going to walk away. This isn't working. I'm just going to go along with the flow as the world tells us? Well, you need hope. You need the hope that the Bible continually gives us. I ask you this morning do you have hope? Do you have hope? If you're not a Christian, I say with with gentleness in my heart, You have no hope when you die. There's no hope for you. You might have some hope in this life. You might cross your fingers that it's all going to work out. It's all going to get better. But apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, you have no hope for your future. You certainly have no hope for life after death. No hope that you'll pass through death into eternal life, into a place the Bible calls heaven, a place that Jesus called paradise. In fact, I think Paul's very clear here. He's writing to Christians. What does he say there at the beginning of, of verse 16? Look who he's referring to. Now, may our Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ, and what else? Our God, our, our God, our God our Father. So he's writing to people who have submitted their lives to Jesus as their Lord, as their King. He's writing to people who have trusted in the Father. Uh, as, and God as their father. And it's for those people who have turned their life over to him. It's those people that the Bible says, okay, you now have great hope. This is the hope in which Jesus has secured for you. It was when Martin Lloyd-Jones was still a practicing physician, the great Welsh preacher, that one of the most prominent surgeons in all Bart's Hospital, uh, without warning, lost a woman that he was in a very personal relationship with. And Lloyd-Jones was surprised after her sudden death to find this morning chief surgeon standing at his door asking if he might come into Lloyd-Jones' office and sit by the fire. Lloyd-Jones still uh, never knew why he wanted to do that. Perhaps he just wanted to find a uh, a place where he could be by himself undisturbed. Well, Lloyd-Jones' biographer wrote about this event saying, for some two hours without a word, the distraught great man stared vacantly into the fire until every aspect of the scene was indelibly fixed on Lloyd-Jones's memory. And then in his own words, Lloyd-Jones explains, that event had a profound effect upon me. I saw the vanity of all human greatness. Here was a tragedy, a man without hope at all. I mean, here's a man who has reached the top of his career, the chief surgeon at a very prestigious hospital, and yet when tragedy comes, there was nothing there to support him. There was no hope. A great man without hope. I, I, I ask you, do you have hope? Do you have hope? Truly, honestly, ask yourself, do you hope in this life? Do you have a confident expectation that God is, is going to take care of it all and bring you into eternity. Paul tells us how we can have that hope. You notice that little phrase there at the end of verse 16. He says that we can have this eternal hope, comfort, and good hope through grace. Through grace. If God is not gracious to us, we, we have no hope. That's where our hope is. Our hope is found in God's grace. Paul knew about grace. You know that Paul spent his early days seeking to beat and to imprison and even to kill Christians, and then he would spend his later days planting churches filled with Christians. You say, What what accounts for the change? Well, one word. Grace. The grace of God transformed his life. The grace of God is our standing before God. That we all, as the Bible tells us, we're alienated from God like sheep. We have all gone astray. And no matter how good or kind or noble we might be, we have all walked away from the Lord. And yet we need to be brought back to him and can be brought back only by his grace found in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come into this world. And he's died upon the cross for our sins, taken our place. He who is perfect bore our punishment upon himself. He lived a life that we should have lived but have not. And then he died the death that we could not die in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he offers grace to all who would receive him if they would yield themselves to him as their Lord in faith. Grace he offers us. And it's through that grace that we have hope and so I, I encourage you my christian brothers and sisters this morning in the midst of the storms and temptations and the difficulties of this life we ought to live in light of the hope that we have i appreciate the ministry of randy alcorn so much who talks about our life here on this earth being a dot and our eternal life being a line that does not end so you got a dot and a line that goes on forever and he is dismayed, as I'm sure many Christians are, that, that a, a great deal of Christians seem to live entirely for the dot and neglect the line that goes on forever. They put all their hope in the dot. That it has to go this way. The dot has to be like this. I have to have this, and I need life to go like this. Entirely uh, ignorant or, or neglectful of the line that continues on forever. I think Christians should live differently. How many Christians live exactly the same as people who have no hope for eternal life? That should not be the case. Because of our hope, should we not be sacrificial? Should we not be generous? Should we not, indeed, as Paul tells us, stand firm? So then, brothers, stand firm because of our great hope. Fourthly and lastly, you see, Paul will tell us to stand firm by being established in good works. Look at how this passage ends here when he prays there in verse 17 that God would comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In every good work and word. In other words, what Paul says is, listen, don't give up doing good. Don't give up speaking God's truth. Stand firm. God's going to give you the strength. God will establish you. God will provide the strength for you to continue on. So he prays, God, will you do this in life? establish them. How many times have we seen this in a Christian's life, and we stand back and watch their life, and we are amazed at the strength they have, and we might think, how can he continue to care for his parents like that in their current situation, or how can he remain faithful to his spouse when she treats him like that, or how can they maintain joy in such sickness, or or how can so-and-so have peace And such a time of great loss. I mean, we've seen these events, have we not? There is one answer to that question. God gives strength. God establishes us. And he does so, Paul explains, for every good work and words. Which I think is a very interesting way to kind of summarize all these ideas. So we've seen in chapter 2, Paul is talking about the context of all this is the end of human history. I mean, these are incredible, cataclysmic, cosmic realities. This is the, he's talking about the final gasp of humanity's rebellion, the powerful man of lawlessness, the great apostasy, the final clash between God and Satan. And he gets to the end and he says, Oh God, help them to do good and to speak good. It seems so mundane to me. It seems so simple to me. Right? Help them to continue to do the good works that you've laid out for them. And yet I'm reminded of when Jesus spoke in Matthew 25 and that great day of judgment when Jesus says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats, how will he distinguish them? You remember? What will be the distinguishing marks? Well, it's good works. And these people fed the hungry and these people clothed the naked and these people visited the sick and the dying and the imprisoned. And Jesus will go on and say, listen, whatever you've done to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. In fact, not even a cup of cold water given in my name will I forget. It's just the simple godliness of the Christian people. The simple, encouraging, gospel-oriented words we're supposed to have. So Christians stand firm, and your, your firmness is seen in your works. And Christ takes note of it all. In fact, he'll give us strength to do it, as he did to Ahaz's son. Remember King Ahaz, who did not stand firm? Well, he wasn't the only man that the prophet Isaiah encouraged to do so. Ahaz had a son. His name was Hezekiah. He also would become king of Judah, and he would be in a very similar situation to his of his father, except his situation was far more dire. For the Assyrians that Ahaz had allied with had now turned against Judah at this point and had besieged Jerusalem with 185,000 troops. And the Assyrian heralds stood at the exact same spot that Isaiah stood a generation earlier outside Jerusalem at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, upper pool. And from there, the Assyrian herald mocked Hezekiah's faith, much as the world mocks our faith. And he tempted the people of Jerusalem. He said to them, make your peace with me. He says, look at the power we have. We've got 185,000 troops. You have no hope. Make your peace with the world. Join with us. The same temptation the world continues to bring against us day after day. And yet after that Assyrian herald offered his temptation, Isaiah would come to that king. And he gave him the the same message that he gave to his father. In the face of the opposition of the world, stand firm in your faith. If you know the story, you know that Hezekiah did, unlike his father. He went the temple courtyards, and there he prayed, O Lord our God, save us from his hand. Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And God did. God did save his people. God did defeat his enemies. And that great defeat, the hand of one angel, is simply a foretaste of the victory that Christ will bring when he comes on that great day of the Lord and he comes to defeat his enemies. Christ is returning in victory. He's returning for us. And so I tell you, Christians, this morning, stand firm in the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this exhortation, this timely application in the day in which we live, a day of of trouble, a day of chaos, a day of uncertainty, and a day of increasing pressure on those who trust in you. And we pray that you would help us to remain faithful to you, that we will be firm in our faith even as you are faithful to us. In particular, Father, my heart goes out to the teens in our midst and the, the, the children over there in the backyard just a little ways away. And we realize this world is changing We realize that opposition only grows to your people. Sadly, it seems that America is not the place it once was. We pray for our young people. We pray for all of us. In light of all the temptations, whether it be the world, whether it be false teaching, or whether it be the flesh within our own hearts, we ask, by your grace, that you would help us to stand for And we pray for our friends here who might be here with us or watching on our live stream that may not know Jesus as their Lord. They might not know you, God, as their Father. We pray that you would remind them, that you would help them understand all that Christ has done in order to provide salvation for them, that they too can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that they can have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God within them if they would yield their life to Jesus Christ in faith. You might even work in them even now, Father, that you might call them through this gospel and that they might surrender their lives to you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We invite